Well, I'm a really impatient driver. Uh, Lois and I were in Lanzarote last week, and uh, my brother-in-law convinced me to hire a car, which I didn't really want to do. But uh, after I got over the first night of hitting the left door, trying to change gears and running into the right curb, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, but the funny thing about driving in Lanzarote is it's really slow. So there's, the speed limits are, I think the highest one is 62 miles an hour. That shows my frustration that I googled what 100 kilometers an hour is. <laughs> Come on. And, uh, and then there's so many tourists who are on their first day and they're driving 30 down in a 100 kilometer an hour road. And so there are so many times that I'm driving along behind them, like, oh, come on. Brother-in-law's sitting next to me giving me the side eye. And uh, Lois just hates sitting next to me when we're stuck in traffic. I'm a nightmare. And uh, we can only really imagine the impatience and frustration that the Israelites were feeling when they've got an 11-day journey to take. God's rescued them from slavery. He started to lead them the 11-day journey. They get there, they go into the land. Joshua says, we can take it, it's ours for the taking. And the Israelites say, no, we have, we have no faith. And they wander away. And what should have been an 11-day journey took 40 years. I think I would be freaking out if my car journey took that long. Well, this morning we're in the fourth week of our series in the book of Joshua. So far we've seen uh, from the book of Deuteronomy, Moses dies and Joshua takes up the mantle. He starts to lead Israel. Uh, then we saw Joshua 1, the people begin to prepare for battle. And then last week, uh, Ian showed us the radical love of God that extends even to the Gentile rehab. Uh, but this week, the moments finally come. Uh, the feeling in Israel must be, God is never going to do this. We've been wandering for years. But this morning, it finally does happen. Here's three things I want us to see from this account. Uh, they should be behind me. God's promise fulfilled, God's power revealed, and God's people remember. Let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Oh, Lord, we, we love you. Uh, we, we declare this morning that your word is truth. Uh, it's the guiding light for our lives. And so Lord, this morning, would you just uh, fill us with the Spirit, dig around in our hearts and submit us to your word, Lord. Uh, we just pray this morning that we would leave here uh, caught up in the majesty of Jesus and, and more like him, Lord. Would you work powerfully? Uh, what is true and good, would you stick to our hearts? Uh, and what is not of you, would you just fade away this morning? Lord, we love you. Come in power. Amen. Great. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Joshua chapter 3. Uh, and our first point this morning is God's promise fulfilled. Uh, we're in chapters 3 and 4 this morning, so it's, it's quite a long passage, so we're just going to read it in chunks. So uh, have a look at verse 8 with me. It says this, And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. 
So when the people went out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with a priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that's beside Zarathen. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Well, the entire Pentateuch, that's what we might call the first five books of the Bible, all point to this moment. In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They walk freely with God. They have uh, choice foods. They have all their heart could desire. Uh, But we know the story doesn't end there. They rebel. They choose to follow their own way. uh, And ultimately, God casts them out of the garden, away from his presence, away from goodness, uh, and away from eternal life. It's a tragic moment. And actually, we begin to see humanity not just be cast out of the garden, but descend further and further away from God. Uh, But then we have this moment, Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham and he begins to go the other way again. He calls Abraham and he makes this promise. He says, your people will will be in the millions and they'll dwell in the land that I'm going to give them. The promise is this. It's God's people in God's land under God's rule. The place will be a reflection of the Garden of Eden. God will dwell with man again in the promised land, at least in part. And so God miraculously rescues his people from slavery. He, he brings them out to the wilderness towards the promised land. And the promises continue. He says, this land will be flowing with milk and honey. In the desert, the people eat manna, this dry, crispy bread. In the promised land, they'll eat choice foods. In the desert, they have no home. They wander around. In Canaan, they will have a home. The land that God will give them will be a physical representation of his goodness to them. Adam and Eve walked freely in the Garden of Eden, had access to the best of foods and unlimited access to God himself. A glimpse of that has been promised to Israel here, a new Eden. Well, in our text this morning, Israel are once again on the brink of crossing into the land. The spies have gone in, we saw that last week, and they've said the same thing again. The people fear us. There's nothing that can stop us. They fear God. This land is ours. And this time the people believe as the story picks up on the banks of the Jordan, I wonder if you can picture Joshua for years lying awake at night, staring at the, the ceiling of his tent, if that's what you called your tent, just thinking, ah, I've been doing this since I was a young guy. I know we can do it, and he just doesn't see it happen. I think this is a really normal story to us if we've been in church for a while, 40 years in the wilderness and Jesus was in the desert and we kind of view it as a theological thing. But man, 40 years wandering around the desert is crazy. So long. It must have been excruciating. But the day has come. We can imagine the count. The excitement must be palpable. They're, they're like, this is it. Oh my goodness, we're on the banks. We've been here before, but it's actually happening this time. The people consecrate themselves and the priests are ordered to wade in to the river. And so the Levites set out. They've got the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. Uh, And look at verse 15 of chapter 3. As soon as their toes touch the water, the rivers dry up. 
Can you imagine the people's first steps in? It's like a dream. We've been waiting. There's people who were infants coming out of Egypt, have lived their whole life wandering in the desert, and now they're actually crossing over. What a moment that is. One step after another, and they're in. Israel have entered the promised land. Do you remember the two promises to Abraham? It was the people will enter the land, but what else? A great nation, as many as the stars. Look at verse 17. All Israel passed over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This is the first instance in the Bible outside of prophecy or promise that Israel are called a nation. The significance of this is huge. They're no longer a wandering nomadic tribe in the desert with no place to call their own. They're God's people in God's land. God has not failed to live up to his promises. 400 years of slavery, 40 years of wandering, and in an instant, it's in the past. Israel is in the promised land. The exodus is over. God heard the cries of his people and he rescued them. The salvation is complete. The desert years are over. If you were to look forward to chapter 5, you would see that Israel in chapter 5 have their first meal from the produce of the land. And the manna just dries up forever. God has provided for them in abundance. Well, throughout the Bible, water is used as a recurring illustration for God's judgment, but then also his ensuing salvation. So, for example, we get at Noah's Ark, the world floods in judgment and Noah is saved through the ark. Uh, The waters crash down on the Egyptians, but the Israelites are saved as God parts the sea. In the Psalms, David portrays Sheol, that's what the Mets call the grave, uh, as a rough sea that pulls humanity down in its waves. And then says in Psalm 18 that God has saved him through many waters. Fast forward to Jonah, he's cast into the sea as judgment for his disobedience. And on the third day is spat out by a whale, he's saved. Well, in our story, the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the waters and they're heaped back in a pile. The Israelites walk through on dry ground. Jesus, just like those priests, wades into the waters of God's judgment and he stems the tide. Because of Jesus, we can walk through God's judgment on dry ground. Unlike the priests, though, Jesus doesn't exit the river dry. The waters crash down on him. He takes all the judgment that we deserve. Jesus is like the ark that Noah hid in and saved himself from the judgment. Jesus is the one who saves us from the sea of death. He's the one who, like Jonah, escapes God's judgment on the third day. Jesus is the one who calls us to be baptized, going down into the waters, but knowing for certain that we will rise again with him. We must follow Jesus over the river. There is not another way to cross. All of us must die. All of us must face judgment. And only in Jesus will we make it safely through. And because of him, one day the promised land will look just like a shadow. We'll enter the new creation. In the promised land, they had milk and honey. In the new creation, we'll eat the wedding feast of the Lamb. In the new creation, God dwelt with them at arm's length in the temple. In the new creation, we'll walk with them like they did in Eden. Friends, we don't trust in Jesus with our fingers crossed behind our back. He's not one option. Put all your chips in on him. He's not, don't hedge your bets on Jesus. 
He is the one in whom God's promises are fulfilled. The second thing we'll see from our passage this morning is God's power revealed. Uh, Have a look again with me at chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. It says, So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all the banks through the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap far away. Well, the tension is building. The people set out. The priests approach. They dip their toes in. And then verse 15, there's a report on the weather conditions. Seems bizarre. A few years ago, I don't know if you remember this, ITV came under a lot of heat because they cut to an advert right before Everton scored a winning goal in the FA Cup. This feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? We're approaching, the climax is coming, and then we've cut to an advert for Cocoa Pops. The priests are about to dip their toes in. The, the, the Jordan overflows its banks during the harvest. Why on earth would this amazing story be interrupted with this detail? Well, when I come to stories like this, I picture something about the width of the Clyde. Right? Like, I can just see over it's right there. God, just help me out. When I picture the waters in a heap, as I've been preparing this, I imagine something the width of that chair, a little stream just heaped up. Oh, God, isn't that nice? I think our temptation is to say, yeah, they could cross if they tried, but God helps them out. I think the reality that verse 15 is getting at is much more than that. The floodplains of the Jordan vary from being about 200 yards to a mile wide. Uh, Even on a good day, the area that they're crossing is outrageously hard to cross. There's a massive bush and jungle growth right there. They can't get through it. It's not just the water that's the issue. Uh, the, the depth of the river at the point they cross means that the current is raging. This is not a trickling stream. It's a raging river. Two young men could get across like we saw last week to spy out in Jericho. But a whole nation with older people, children, livestock and possessions will never make it across. We need to be clear here that Israel will not cross this river unless God acts. So why now? Why would God call Israel to the Jordan at the exact worst moment? Well, it seems that this is a pattern in the way that God works. When everything seems hopeless, he saves. When it seems like we're at our very last, he shows his power. The Israelites have no room to get over the river and say, oh, weren't we great there? Weren't we so intuitive and we made it over and we were so clever? Man, God just shows them, no, it's all my power. This is a work of God alone. They contribute nothing to the crossing. God only calls them to have faith and step into the river. This is a great example of what faith is. The priests believe God at his word and they step into a raging river that's overflowed its banks. And the second they step in, it stops purely as a work of God. Our faith is never in the power of our faith. It's always in the power of God. And so they take him at his word and the moment that they step, the river stops. And if we have any doubt reading this account, the moment that they step out again, the river goes. This is not a natural phenomena or a weather pattern or a dam upstream. This is a work of God alone. And the writer of this passage wants us to remember that and worship God for that when we read this little strange verse about the floodplains of the Jordan. 
one Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, uh, he writes about the most talented people in our society. So he, he thinks about Bill Gates and the Beatles and, and Steve Jobs. And uh, in his chapter on Bill Gates, he says this. He says, Bill Gates is a one in a million genius computer programmer. But that's not the whole story. When he was 13 in 1968, his family friends owned a mainframe computer. And at that point in time in America, he had unlimited 24-7 access to a mainframe computer. He would have been one of about 10 people in the country with that kind of access. So by the time he got to uni, he was completely adept at programming. And then when the personal computer was invented, he was just out of university. And Malcolm Gladwell said he was the perfect age. He wasn't too young. He wasn't too old so that he had a family to take care of. He could take a risk. And Steve Jobs was the exact same age at the time. Here's what Gladwell will say about Bill Gates. He's clearly talented, but that's not the whole story. He was dealt a brilliant hand. Had he been born to another family in another place at another time, he would not be the household name that he is. But we need to see in this passage that God is not like Bill Gates. He hasn't been dealt a good hand. He has what we might call aseity. And that just means that God is completely self-existing and that nothing and nobody can contribute to his glory. He's majestic. Nothing adds to him. Nothing takes away from him. We don't need to help him out. God's power to save does not come from our faith. It does not come from our obedience. It does not come from our circumstance. His power to save is not limited or added to by anything. In fact, the more impossible our circumstance seems, the more God delights to show his power by saving us. That's what the Apostle Paul gets at when he says that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Let's be clear with one another. Your salvation is entirely from front to back a work of God alone. This is the truth that Christians throughout the centuries have lived and died for. The Christian faith is unique in that every other major world religion will say something like, Obey these rules or meditate and become enlightened or, or reincarnate as someone better because you've lived well. The Christian faith is unique. It says it's all a work of God alone. Our hope flies in the face of the world's hope. Because our life is not found in anything inside of us. It's found in the life and goodness and power of another. Picture this with me. The waters stack in a heap up the Jordan. The Israelites start to cross, and one of them says, hold on, guys, I'm going to help out. And he runs up the stream, and he, he starts to push against the waters. Come on, quick, guys, cross. The Israelites will be going, what's this guy doing? This guy's deluded. He thinks he's holding back the waters. God is stemming the tide, and he thinks it's him. We are even more deluded to think that we are holding off God's judgment by our good works. That is a destructive lie. You cannot contribute to the appeasement of God's wrath or the, the defeating of death. Jonathan Edwards put it the best. He said, you contributed nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. Everything given to you by God is purely a work of grace alone. Even your faith is a free gift from God. On the cross, Jesus purchased everything that you need to be saved that means that as he dies your faith the regeneration of your heart the life you're living now the new creation we'll inherit the access to the presence of god forgiveness of sins adoption the indwelling spirit are all purchased as free gifts of god's grace we don't add anything 
The fullness of your salvation was bought by Jesus on the cross. You contributed nothing. But we've seen that God is faithful and he's powerful. Were God only faithful and not powerful, we would have a God who is love but has no strength to act on it. Were God only powerful but not faithful, we would have a frightening, tyrannical God. But in the crossing of the Jordan, we see both. We see a God who is loving and faithful and powerful enough to save his people. Our hope is in the God who saves because he loves us and is able to do it. God does not need your help to save. The crossing of the Jordan declares loud and clear. Salvation belongs to God alone. But the Israelites are in the land now. And look at verse 13 of chapter 4. 40,000 of them are ready for battle. Verse 19, we're told that they cross directly east of Jericho. And you start to get this feeling of, here we go. Jericho's ready for the taking. The people are ready for battle. Let's charge in. But that's not God's priority. The battles will come, and we'll spend a lot of the rest of our series there. Uh, but first, a mini building project. And our final point, God's people remember. Have a look at chapter 4 with me. Uh, starting in verse 4. It says, Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And then forward to verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. 